just as a little bit of a recap, so we're in a a series right now on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we started this about three weeks ago, I think, maybe four now, and Jason started out uh, in the first message laying out kind of an overarching theme for this passage of Scripture. It's a very familiar passage. We know it uh, very well, Uh, and the theme that he laid out is that true happiness comes from living in right relationship with God. Now, also just a brief introduction. My name is Isaac. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors. Sorry, I'm a little bit disheveled here starting out. Not a good way to to start second service. So I'm Isaac, one of the pastors, and happy and excited to be sharing the word this morning. Um, This theme, true happiness, comes from living in right relationship with God. We see this throughout the the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, Jason uh, pointed out to us, or Jesus showed us, that living in right relationship with God is more about, or at least just as much about, our heart motivations as it is our external actions. So Jesus was poking and prodding on some of our heart motivations, especially giving, things like giving and praying and, um, and fasting, what we, how we look to other people versus what's actually motivating our hearts. And in this passage, Jesus is going to push a little bit deeper into our heart motivations because he's ultimately driving towards a question. And it's a question that fundamentally shapes who we are as people, it fundamentally colors how we respond to people in our lives and circumstances in our lives. It's a question that each of us has to answer every single day and sometimes multiple times a day. The question is, whom or what do you serve? Now, Jesus is going to come at this question through the, the topic of money. But this is not a sermon primarily about money. It's about our hearts. And what Jesus knows is that even as Christians, and especially as 21st century American Christians, we are in danger of forfeiting the joy, the peace, the freedom that he offers to us in relationship with him for the false promises and false hopes of materialism. And I believe that through this passage, Jesus wants to open our eyes to see the foolishness and destructiveness of serving this false God and invite us into an experience, a greater experience of joy and freedom in relationship with him. So let's read the text. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. But look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes this morning to see you more clearly, to see ourselves more clearly. Help us to see and hear your invitation to us to a life of greater joy and freedom. And help us to respond by faith so that we can experience all that you have for us. For our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I'm going to address or tackle this passage in two parts. First part, verses 19 through 24, I'm calling the perils of materialism. And then verses 25 through 31, I've titled the better, A Better Pursuit. And before we get started, I want to just define what I mean when I talk about materialism. Because Jesus uses the term money here. I'm using the term materialism and I, because I think it has a little bit more traction for us. It, ha- it carries a little bit more uh, specific connotations for us. Webster's Dictionary defines materialism as a preoccupation with, and I think that's an important word, or stress upon material rather than intellectual or spiritual things. The Cambridge Dictionary defines materialism as the belief that having money and possessions is the most important thing in life. My working definition is the pursuit of comfort, security, satisfaction, and freedom through money, possessions, status, and achievement. Say that again. The pursuit of comfort, security, satisfaction, and freedom through money, possessions, status, or achievement. So let's look at the perils of materialism. Jesus starts with two illustrations that are intended to help us see uh, how and where materialism might be functioning in our hearts. The first illustration is about investment. This is a well-known passage we see in uh, verse uh, 19 to 21. And I think in many ways it's, it's a very straightforward illustration. If you have a choice between investing your money somewhere where it's guaranteed to get destroyed, eaten by bugs, and or stolen by thieves, or you can invest it somewhere where it's guaranteed to endure and grow and increase for all eternity, which one are you going to pick? It's a no-brainer, right? So the question is, are we taking God up on his offer? What does it actually mean to invest in heavenly treasure. I think the contrast that Jesus gives here is helpful for us. So first, I think we need to ask the question, what does it mean to lay up treasure on earth? I think we would all agree, at least in principle, that it means something like the accumulation of possessions, experiences, and status that serve our own desire for pleasure, comfort, security, and freedom. The end of earthly treasure is self-gratification. And I think we can all probably think of examples of people that come to mind that embody this illustration. Unfortunately, in our culture, there are too many examples of celebrities or athletes or lottery winners who squander massive fortunes on foolish things that are just intended to feed their own appetites. But that's not what Jesus is primarily concerned with here. I mean, he is concerned for those people, but that's not what he's addressing here in us. This is not about having less than or living more modestly than someone else. In fact, it's not about anyone else at all. It's about you. What is controlling your heart? So what does it mean to lay up treasures in heaven? What does it mean to invest in kingdom treasure? If investing in earthly treasure is about self-gratification, I think we can say that investing in kingdom treasure is about self-denial. And I think we see this clearly in Matthew 16 where Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
We see this throughout Jesus' teaching. We see it throughout the New Testament. Self-denial is at the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But it's not about denial for the sake of denial. It's not about giving up for the sake of sacrifice. It's about denying ourselves for the sake of experiencing greater joy and greater reward in God alone. The end goal, actually, of the two treasures is the same. It's our joy, peace, and freedom. The path that we get there is different. So what does the way you spend your time and money reveal about what you ultimately value, about your priorities, about what is controlling your heart? I'm sure that most of us would not say that we are obsessed with having the biggest house or the nicest car or the nicest clothes or the nicest anything. And I believe that to be true. I don't think that that's something that we are generally obsessed with. I don't hear people bragging too much in this church about how great nice their car is. But if we're honest, there is a constant onslaught in our culture to increase steadily and slowly, our standard of living. We may not want the biggest house, but it might be nice to have a little bit more space, a little bit more land. We may not want the nicest or most expensive car, but it might be nice to have one, at least it doesn't break down all the time. And that vacation that our neighbors took last year looked really, really fun. I, it would be nice to be able to afford something like that. Now, I want to be very clear. None of those things are inherently wrong or bad. Please don't hear me saying that. In fact, I think it's possible that saving money can actually be just as much of an investment in earthly treasure as spending it. The question is, ultimately, what's controlling our hearts in those decisions? how we think about these decisions and the cumulative impact or the cumulative picture that they paint for our lives over months and years ultimately reveals what we value most. I can't tell you whether the vacation that you want to take or the house you want to buy is an investment in earthly treasure or heavenly treasure. I can't tell you that. That that evaluation doesn't exist. But you should be asking that question. Because you are the one who knows what's controlling your heart. Maybe you buy a new house because you genuinely need more space for your family. You don't fit in your house anymore. But you buy a little bit less house than you could actually afford so that you can have room in your budget for giving. Those are the types of questions that, that ultimately tell where our treasure is. Are there any places in your life where you're choosing to deny your own pleasure, comfort, and security in order to meet the needs of others? If the answer is no, it may be an indication that the priorities and promises of materialism are controlling your heart more than you would like to admit. Is regular, sacrificial, and joyful giving an increasing part of your life or a decreasing part of your life? It's a question of direction. If it's the latter, it may be an indication that the promises and priorities of materialism are controlling your heart more than you'd like to admit. What Jesus is talking about here in laying up treasure in heaven is not a mysterious, mystical exercise. It doesn't mean selling everything that we have or giving everything away and living in poverty, but it does mean something. The cumulative picture of our Spending choices and habits and our time investment habits will reveal what we ultimately value. It's more about the hundred small choices we make every week than it is about the few grand gestures we make over our whole life. When we make small choices to sacrifice our own preferences, pleasure, and comfort to serve and meet the needs of others, we are investing in kingdom treasure. We're declaring that the reward that we experience from being in relationship with Jesus and obeying his commands is greater than the pleasure we would have gotten from another meal or a better car or a nicer house. If we consistently and increasingly make choices that serve our own comfort and gratification, we are laying up treasures in earth. 
and revealing, I think, what ultimately controls our hearts. Second illustration, verses 22 and 23. It's an illustration about lamps and eyes. Now, ironically, I think this is an illustration about seeing clearly, and I actually find this illustration to be a little bit confusing. I've never quite understood what Jesus meant here by our eyes being a lamp. But as I wrestled with this this week, I actually I, I felt like God revealed some things that were very challenging to me. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. Think about a lamp. The light from a lamp colors how you view the world. If you're in a dark room and you turn on a light, a red light bulb, everything that you see will look red. And that's not maybe a big problem unless you're trying to get dressed in the morning and the only light in your closet is bright red. You're going to have a hard time picking out matching clothes. If you turn on one of those like black lights you know, they have at the indoor mini golf place that like, kind of mess with your eyes, everything's going to look kind of like purpley and shiny, right? So maybe that's kind of cool sometimes. Unless you're like going into a hotel room and you suddenly realize that the room is not as clean as you expected it to be. It's a bad image, I know. The point is that lamps color how we view the world. What does that have to do with our eyes? I don't think Jesus is primarily talking about our physical eyes here. What he's talking about is what captures our attention. The more we value something, the more we notice it. Have you ever experienced this to be true? You get a new car and suddenly you start noticing everyone else who has that same car. Or maybe you're into a certain type of clothing or a new hobby. Suddenly you start noticing everyone who's wearing those clothes, everyone who's doing that thing. Everywhere you go, you start noticing it. But then something else happens, right? We don't just notice it out there. We actually start seeking it out. We read, we buy books about it. We read blogs about it. We follow people on Instagram and companies that are into the same things that we are. And pretty soon that thing that was something that was interesting to us suddenly becomes part of our identity. It becomes part of who we are. There's a feedback loop between our hearts, what we value, and our eyes, what we fix our attention on, that not only reveals what we value most, but actually shapes and colors how we view the world. I had this experience a few years ago when I went skiing for the first time. I'm from North Carolina. We don't have a lot of ski mountains in North Carolina. And uh, we went up to Vermont with uh, some of my family. And it was a lot of fun. Like, it was really, really fun. I had a great time, and I came back wanting to ski. So I started spending time looking at it. I started researching ski resorts. I started looking at equipment. I started um, looking at techniques. I started following some ski resorts on Instagram. And so I started seeing a lot of people skiing, and when I saw them skiing, it made me want to ski more. So I started planning for the next ski season. Like, we're going to be a ski family. We're going to rent all of our equipment for the year. You know, we're going to go every weekend, and it's going to be awesome. This is going to be our thing, who we are. Well, then we had an unexpected expense come up. A big, uh, our HVAC system went, and it was a big expense to fix it. And suddenly, I didn't have the money in my budget that I thought I was going to have to ski. But I was still seeing people ski on Instagram. And so when that ski season, next ski season came up, I started, I was seeing people skiing and I wanted to be skiing, but I couldn't go skiing because I didn't have money for it. So what happened? I started to get discontent. I started to get anxious. I started to get frustrated. I actually started to be discontent in my job. Like, well, if I just if I had gotten that raise that I was expecting last year, then I would have money to go ski. And just this cycle started. I, felt, I feel foolish now even saying it, and I actually felt foolish at the time. Like when I was describing to some friends like how it was gripping my heart, I felt stupid even saying it. But the reality is, until I unfollowed those ski resorts on Instagram, it, I, I couldn't get away from it. Here's the point. What Jesus is asking here is, what captivates your attention? Because what captures your attention will ultimately control your heart. 
If we're captivated by Christ and by his word and by his promises and by his priorities, it will color how we view people. It will color how we view situations that we face. It will color how we interact at work and in our families. If our attention is captivated by the perfect houses and the perfect clothes and the perfect relationships and the perfect physiques and the perfect vacations and all of the other fake and false promises that we're fed through advertising and marketing, then that will ultimately color how we view people. It will color how we spend our time and money. It will color what we serve. And friends, this is where I think anyone sitting in this room with a smartphone, and especially anyone who's on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, has to stop and listen to what Jesus is saying here. These shiny boxes know what we value more than we do because they know how we spend our money and they know what captures our attention. And they are more than happy to offer us an endless stream of content that captivates our eyes and feeds our desire for excitement, satisfaction, comfort, approval, intimacy, and freedom. If you're not on social media, God bless you. I'm sure that you are better off for it. But you're not immune from this evaluation. Social media and internet marketing, I think, package this temptation in a uniquely potent way, but it's not a problem of technology, it's a problem of our hearts. And I know that because Jesus is addressing it 2,000 years ago before social media existed. What captures our attention, whether it's on our phones, on TV, walking down the street, or daydreaming in your office at work, what captures your attention will control your heart. What is capturing your attention? What's drawing your thoughts away, even right now? Maybe it's worries about bills you have to pay. Maybe it's frustration with the job that you're in. Maybe it's longing for the vacation that you're leaving on this afternoon or the one that you wish you were leaving on. Maybe it's wondering how many people liked your Instagram post last night. Maybe it's wondering if the guy or girl that you're interested in is going to text you back today. Once again, none of these things are inherently wrong. There are certainly wrong things that can capture our attention. But most of the time, our problem is that we take good things that God has created for our enjoyment and we turn them into things that will ultimately satisfy us. We believe the lie that if we just had X, Y, Z, we would be happy. And so we spend our time and our money trying to get it. We give our attention to thinking about it. And all the while, we subtly and increasingly give these false gods control over our hearts and minds. We become their servants. This is what Jesus is driving at in verse 24. You can either serve the pursuit of your own self-gratification through materialism, or you can serve God who calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. You cannot serve two masters. Who are you serving? Jesus has provided, I think, two very clear questions here for us to evaluate our hearts. Do my time, money, and money-spending habits increasingly reflect God's kingdom priorities or my own desire for comfort and self-gratification? If the answer is the latter, you may be functionally serving materialism more than you'd like to admit. Am I increasingly captivated by Christ, his word, and his ways, or by, be, or by the things of, that this world holds out to me as satisfying? If it's the latter, you may be functionally serving materialism rather than Jesus. What is the peril of materialism? It becomes your God. And friends, this is a danger that we as Christians living in an incredibly prosperous and affluent society have to take very seriously. I'm afraid for myself. I'm afraid for you that it's so easy in our culture to think that we can have it all. We can have all of the benefits that the culture gives us and uh, and tells us will make us happy. And we can have all the benefits that Christ offers to us without any of the sacrifice that he requires. Jesus has laid out the problem. He's shown us the peril of materialism. So where do we go now? 
I find it actually very interesting that you know, Jesus brings us to this very sober point of evaluation. I think, whom do you serve? Or what are you serving? And I, would, I kind of expect him in that moment to like bring down the hammer. You know, like if you choose the God of materialism, it will destroy your life. It will leave you desperate and hopeless and helpless. And I think all those things are true actually from the rest of scripture, but that's not where Jesus goes. Instead, he gives us, I believe, three reasons why God is a better master than money. So this brings us to a better pursuit. I'm just going to give you the three reasons and then we'll unpack them. Reason number one, God is a better master than money. He provides for his children. God always provides for his children. Reason number two, God is a better master than money. God directs the lives of his children. And reason number three, God knows his children. Or I would add, God desires to be in relationship with his children. And behind all three of these reasons is one, I think, very significant assumption about the end result of serving the God of materialism. And we see it in this one word that's repeated six times through verse 25 and 34. Do not be anxious about your life. Verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Verse 28. Why are you anxious about clothing? Verse 31, therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? Verse 34, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. What is the result of putting your hope in something that can't actually deliver what it promises, something we can't actually attain, and something that if we did attain it could come crashing down at any moment? Anxiety. So let's look at the first reason why God is a better master than money. He provides for his children. We see this in verse 25, 26, and 28 through 31. The challenge of this passage is that it's really familiar and really simple, and so I don't think that it really gets traction for us. If we really understood and lived in the reality of what Jesus is saying here, it would be totally life-changing, and it is totally life-changing. I think for many of us, this truth that God provides for all of our needs is something that we kind of pull out of our pocket when we're facing a desperate situation. Like, and that could be different for all of us, but any situation that brings us to a point where there's a need, a real need, and we don't have the means to meet it. That's when we go to God and we start crying out for help and we trust him for provision. But what about, what about when you're reviewing your budget and you just start to see all the things that don't fit. Car inspections coming up. Paying off credit card bill. Saving for college. Saving for retirement. Buying a house. Going on vacation. Whatever it is. There are, for, I'm sure for almost all of us, a list of things that we would like to fit into our budget and there's no place for them. And if you're like me, your, your inclination in those moments is not to turn to God. What do we do? We become anxious. Chest tightens. Your breathing starts getting a little bit faster. Your mind starts racing through possibilities. You might get, start to get frustrated by your job or that you don't make more money. You might even start to subtly blame God. God, if you, if you really love me, you really provided for my needs, I wouldn't be in this situation. I would have gotten that promotion or raise that I really wanted. I, the car would be breaking down again. I think this is exactly the type of situation that Jesus is speaking to in this passage. And my prayer is that we would hear his invitation in a fresh way. Child, don't be anxious about your life. God always provides for his children and he's going to provide for you. This is why God is a better master than money. You cannot trust your money to provide for you. When your money is gone, you're out of luck. You can't pray to money for more money. It doesn't care and it doesn't listen. You're on your own 
And that's why you feel so anxious. We recently started watching uh, Shark Tank with our older boys, and I know we're like 10 years late to the game here, but they're, um, they're at an age where we thought it would be interesting to, you know, to interact over some of these things. And if you're familiar with the show at all, you know that one of the sharks is named Kevin O'Leary. And this is a man who, is unapol- who unapologetically loves money. Like, he loves to talk about money. He loves to talk about how much he loves money. He loves to talk about all the things he loves about money. And in the very first episode, he just gushes on the things that he loves about money. But they are not the things that you might expect anyone to love about anything. To one person, he says, that's what I love about money. It has no soul. It doesn't care. To another person, he says, that's what I love about money. No emotions, no tears, just reality. And to another person who's getting emotional about the, this, this business that they're trying to build and the investment that they've made and what it means for them, he says, don't cry about money. It never cries for you. Now that's harsh. And he actually, based on the way that he treats people, it kind of seems like he believes that because money doesn't care about people, he shouldn't either. But that's another story. The reality is, he's right. Your money doesn't care about you. It won't cry for you. You're on your own. That's not how God treats his children. Just hear the tenderness in Jesus' language in verse 27. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? You just have the image of God reaching out his hand to feed the birds. If he cares about the birds, how much more does he care about you? We'll come back in the last point about our response. How do we respond when we experience this kind of anxiety when it comes to provision? But in this section, I just want you to hear God's heart. I just want you to hear Jesus' invitation to you. He knows your needs, big and small. He cares about you. And he's inviting you to leave behind this lie that you are on your own to provide for your needs. You're not. Sometimes I think that we can have this idea that you know, God will provide for the big things. Like he's not going to let me go hungry It's not going to let me be homeless. I can trust him for those big things, but when it comes to all the small things, I'm on my own. You know, like when it comes to my kids needing new shoes, that's up to me. Or sometimes, like, there are things that we don't really need, but we kind of want, right? And we we can almost feel like, yeah, like God doesn't really like want me to have nice things, so I'm not going to go to him for that. Like if he'll provide for my food, but if I want steak, that's that's on me. I got to I got to make that happen myself. Now, I want to be very 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 clear here. Because I do not believe in any form of the prosperity gospel. This idea that God will bless us with financial riches in this life and grant us our materialistic dreams like some sort of genie. That's not what I believe. I don't think that the scriptures say that. I believe, as Jesus has already said here, that following him requires sacrifice and self-denial. And that is the path of true joy in this life and for all eternity. But let's just say you have a need or a want That's churning in your heart. You can't just make that go away. It's turning in your mind. It's starting to control your actions. What do you do? You can either run away from God and hide from him because you think, well, I can't really like bring that to God because he doesn't really want me to have a nicer car. 
And so you go chase it on your own, thinking that you want to, you have to make it happen if it's going to happen, and you hide from God. Or you can bring that to God with all of your mixed motives and all of your confusion and all of the questions that you have. God, you see that, just as an example, you see I want to take my kids to Disney World. It's a lot of money. I, I honestly don't see how it's going to fit into our budget, but I'd really like to have that memory as our family. You see my heart. You see, like, there's mixed motives here. Like, there's part of me that, that wants this for my own comfort. It, part of me that wants it because some of my friends have done it, and it looks really fun. You know that. I know you love us, Lord, and that you, everything that you provide for us is for our good and everything you withhold from us is for our good. You've always been faithful to provide for us. Thank you for the ways that you've provided for us and directed us. Would you help this thing not to control me so much? I just want to lay it before you. If it would be good for us, if, if it's something that you would be pleased to provide for us, I pray that you would make that happen. If not, I pray that you would help me not to be controlled by this. What happens? Totally changes how we view that thing, doesn't it? And what's the alternative? What's the alternative? Running from God, hiding from him, and chasing after this thing that we think will make us happy because we don't think that God loves us enough to give it to us. Reason number one that God is a better master than money, he always provides for his children. Reason number two, God directs the lives of his children. We see this in verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? A lot of what I said, I think, in the previous section applies in this area. We, I think we're much more inclined to go to God when there's major decisions, major crises, major uh, problems that we're facing those are the times that we go to him and we want him to provide for us. But it's actually, I think, a lot harder for us to trust him for direction and provision in the little situations of our lives that actually make up the majority of our lives, jobs and relationships and kids and health. These are things that gnaw at our minds. Problems and decisions and worries are constantly churning and causing us to be distracted and stressed and anxious. And I want to just dig in a little bit on what's actually happening here. And I recognize that when we talk about anxiety, this, this hits people in a lot of different ways and to a lot of different degrees. And I'm not going to be able to cover every nuance of how anxiety functions in our lives. But I believe that the principles here can meet all of us at some point. So what's actually happening when we experience anxiety? We face a problem or a decision, or maybe you just start thinking about some possible scenario that could happen in the future. Losing a job, getting sick, something, anything. And you start turning it in your mind. You start thinking about all of the possible outcomes, and as a result, you start to feel anxious and afraid. Or maybe you just are distracted, just constantly turning in the back of your mind, and you're preoccupied. It's pulling you out of the situation that you're in and into some future possibility. What's happening here is that we are importing into our present situation some future possibility of failure or pain. That's ultimately what anxiety is, right? Fear is a response to a real and present danger. Like someone's pointing a gun at me and I'm afraid for my life. Anxiety is a present response to some future possibility of failure or pain. Now, Track with me here. I know I'm kind of taking a, a turn, but we're headed somewhere. What often happens, and I think especially when we're facing real problems and real decisions, is that we rationalize our anxiety with the fact that there's some immediate action I have to take right now. I need to pay the bill. I need to decide where to go to college. I need to find a job. I need to decide whether to pursue this relationship or not. 
There's action that's required right now. So we turn all the possibilities in our mind and we feel anxious about the result because we can't control the outcome. But the thing that we are actually worried about is not the decision itself. We are anxious about the outcome if we make the wrong decision or if the situation plays out in a negative way. We're not anxious about our action. We are anxious about the outcome. So here's an example. We're thinking a lot about school right now in our house. So we've been homeschooling for the last number of years, and our oldest is approaching middle school. And so we're just asking questions like, is this, how much longer do we want to keep homeschooling? If we do, uh, what context do we want to do that in? There's a lot of choices for how you do that. If not, what are the other options we should consider? All these things are turning. But the reality is it's not the decision itself that's weighing on us, right? It's the possible outcomes of those decisions. If we pick the wrong decision or we don't pick the best option, then maybe our kids won't be successful in college. Maybe they won't be successful in life. What if they struggle socially? What if they are bored academically? How will the decision impact our family, the dynamics of our family, and the way we spend our time? All of these things are churning and turning, pulling us into some future unknown outcomes that we can't control. This is where we're headed here. This is the point I think Jesus is driving at. We do not control the outcomes of our life. I want to say that again because I want to be very clear and I want it to sink in. We do not control the outcomes of our life. God does. Now I imagine that some of you actually might kind of recoil from that. You, that makes you feel something inside. It actually does to me too. And the reason I think is that we want to believe that we control our lives. The problem is I don't see that in the Bible. Proverbs 16.9 The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Psalm 37, 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Jeremiah 10, 23, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. James 4, 13 to 16, come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will do such and such, go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, does this mean that we are not responsible for our choices? Absolutely not. We are responsible, as Jesus will say in a few verses, to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness every day, in every situation, in every decision. It means seeking to understand and apply the wisdom that God has revealed to us in his word and through other people in our lives. It means seeking direction from God through prayer and submitting our decisions to him. It means being obedient right here and right now in what God has given us to do and where he's calling us to go. And when we've done those things, it means entrusting the outcomes to him. Friends, do you see how freeing this truth is for us? To be free from the weight of having to manage every possible outcome of your decisions. To be free from playing over endless possibilities and scenarios of what might or might not happen. To be free from worrying that you've made the right decision or the wrong decision. And do you see how much faith this practice requires from us? Are you willing to give up the control of the outcomes in your life? The reality is you don't have the power to control them anyway. And even if you did, you don't know what you truly need. 
This is ultimately the lie that the God of materialism feeds us. You are in control of your life. You can achieve the outcomes of success that you want. And when you do, you will experience peace, happiness, and freedom. But it's not true. Jesus is inviting us through this passage to experience true peace, true happiness, true freedom, but it comes through giving up control, not trying to maintain it. Reason number two, God is a better master than money. God directs the lives of his children. Reason number three, and I'll invite the band to come back. God knows his children, or I would say, alternatively, God desires to live in relationship with, with his children. Now maybe you're tracking with me up to this point and I hope that you are. And so you, you you would say, yeah, I understand. I'm not supposed to worry about provision in my life because God will provide. I'm not supposed to worry about direction in my life because God will direct me. He will control the outcomes of my life. But what do I actually do when I feel anxious? And it's a good question. I hope you're asking that question because up to now, I think what we have is two options, worry or not worry. Be anxious or not be anxious. Trust God or not trust God. And I don't think that's actually what Jesus is telling us to do because it's, it's not the way that it works, right? We can't do that. We can't just stop worrying about something that's churning in our minds. Let's look at verse 32 and verse 33. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Look at the two responses here. The Gentiles are seeking after these things, provision, direction. They're going towards these things. What does Jesus call us to do? And Gentiles just I mean, I think you get it, but Gentiles is just referring to people who are not in relationship with God. What does Jesus call us to do in contrast to that? To go towards God. So the difference is not in our perspective. The difference is not in what we're thinking. The difference is in our direction, where we are going. And I want you to see this because I think this is, this is a powerful truth that can change how we respond when we're, our minds are gripped with anxiety. When we are feeling anxious, we can go in one of two directions. We can go into the thing that's causing anxiety. So how do we do that? Start thinking about it. Start turning it in our minds, thinking about all the possibilities, thinking about all the outcomes. How, do we, how are we going to manage this? How are we going to do it? What are we going to do here? What if, what if this happens? What if that, that happens? We go into the situation. Or we can take that situation and go to God. We can go towards God. What does that look like? God, you see the situation that I'm facing right now. You see the way that I... I'm feeling about it. You, you know that, that I'm anxious. I, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know how it's going to play out. I, I can't control all of the outcomes here. Lord, I, I see, I, I want to follow you. I want to be obedient to you, but I see also this desire in my heart to control things myself. I see... My, a desire to make this work out for my own comfort. I want to follow you and honor you in this decision, but I don't know what, what that looks like right now. Thank you for the ways that you've always provided for us, Lord. Thank you for the ways that you've always directed us. Would you help me to see what it means to seek your kingdom first in this situation? I don't see it clearly now. Would you help me to trust that you really do love me, that you really do provide for me, that you really do direct the outcomes of my life for my greatest good? What happens in that moment? The circumstances don't change, at least not immediately, but our experience changes. I guarantee you that you come out of that moment 
with more peace and less anxiety than you do if you start by going into the situation. But the difference is not just how we feel, it's where we are. Before the situation, you were going through your day preoccupied with all of the things you had to get done and all of the outcomes that you were trying to manage. But now, you're present right here, right now. You're looking and listening for God's direction. You're reminded of his promises. You're aware of his presence. You're in a place of greater intimacy, greater vulnerability, and openness to God. And friends, this is ultimately what Jesus wants for us. This is where true peace, happiness, and freedom come. Living every day in right relationship with God. What if every situation in your life that tempted you towards anxiety was an invitation from Jesus to experience greater intimacy with him? What if we actually lived, as Jesus describes here in this last verse, not being anxious about tomorrow, not being constantly pulled into a world of possibilities and outcomes that we can't control, but being present in each moment that God has us and open to what he has for us in it. I want more of that in my life. I want more of that for you. As we close, we're going to spend a few minutes just interacting with the Lord over these things. And I recognize that for some of you, this is maybe not an immediate uh, reality or struggle. But I think for some of you, you know too well the cycle and the feedback loop that I'm describing here. And so I just want to do what Jesus invites us to do. Go to God. Bring that situation and circumstance that's causing anxiety with all of the Mixed motivations, good, bad, and ugly, bring it before God because he already knows. Acknowledge how you're feeling, what your questions are, what your doubts are. He already knows. And ask for his presence to be with you as as you struggle through this and for his grace to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. I also want to address anyone who's here who would say that you're not in relationship with Jesus. You, you've never experienced what it means to put your faith in Jesus, and maybe you don't even really know exactly what that means. But something about what you've heard this morning makes you want to learn more. If, if that's your experience this morning, I'd love to talk with you after. I don't know if anyone's in that situation, but I would love to talk to you. I'll be down at the front, and I'd love to talk to you. So as the band plays, let's just go to the Lord, and we'll close with one final song.